0: To our cause goodness to you I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on?
1: Good afternoon everyone. My name's Jess Barnard, I'm an elected Labour NEC member, and I'm really pleased to welcome you to this rally today to kick off the May Day weekend with speakers from around the world. Uh, Simply, Workers of the World Unite is the theme of today. Uh, This exciting event is going to be hosted by Tribune magazine and Arise, an online festival of left ideas. Here in Britain, we need to build resistance to the Tories and build support for social solutions. But for this struggle to be successful, we have to understand our struggle is not alone. And all around the world, many governments like our own are still failing to protect health and people on the ongoing pandemic. And alongside this, the far right around the globe is resorting to scapegoating and militarism. And all around the world, as we will hear from our international speakers tonight, people are not only resisting the ruling class offensive, but fighting for a better future. And in Latin America in particular, where the left is on the advance, they are winning and starting to build it. We need to link up with all of those fighting this ruling class offensive and for progressive alternatives and making links between socialists internationally and our international values of unity, hope and solidarity are more important than ever. Here today, that means backing all workers taking industrial action to secure a better future for all of us. And it's fantastic to have the NEU, PCS and others with us today. And also NHS workers say no with the latest NHS strike starting today. So due to a great level of interest, as well as this uh, Zoom webinar, we are streaming live direct from the Arise YouTube page and over a dozen Facebook pages, including uh, Tribunes today. As the event goes on, please post your comments in the Q&A section on Zoom uh, and let us know where you're tuning in from. And if you can, please do make a donation to put towards the cost of the event and hosting events like this uh, at the link posted in the chat. And finally, before I move on to our speakers, the annual online Arise, a festival of left ideas will be starting on May the 31st. And I'd urge you to grab a ticket today before they sell out. Uh, Now, I'll move on to our speakers for the celebration of socialism, unity and internationalism today, who will each be speaking for around six minutes each. So um, without further ado, our first speaker is Fran, PSC president. In ongoing action that can inspire all of us, currently strategic targeted strikes are being organised by PCS across the civil service after 100,000 PCS members in 214 government departments and other public bodies voted to take strike action over a 10% pay rise, pensions justice, job security and no cuts to redundancy terms. So Over to you, Fran.
2: Thanks so much, Jess, and thanks everyone for having me along. And on this May Day weekend, I want to start by telling you a little bit about the members that I represent. Mm -hmm. I can't afford to put the heating on. As a result, I'm contracting illnesses. I've restricted the amount of food and essentials that I can buy. My mental health is deteriorating due to worry about paying bills and more bills, and I cannot afford to retire. I cannot afford activities outside of work now to alleviate stress. I've not had a holiday in 10 years. And at the moment, I'm panicking about turning the heating on. I sit with a blanket wrapped around me rather than turn it on. And at night, I sit with no lights on to try and save electricity. I provide services to stop families facing poverty. In most cases, clients I help are earning or receiving benefits that far outweigh what I have to live on. I've had to cancel my kids out of school activities because I can no longer afford these so-called luxuries. Friends, these are all testimonies from PCS members, civil servants, employees of the government. Let that sink in for a minute. How is that acceptable in 2023? It's a damning indictment on how undervalued they feel and it cannot go on. We're a far cry aren't we from the bowler hatted bureaucrats that were so often betrayed as. 40% of us processing in work benefits such as universal credit now entitled to claim it. 47,000 using a food bank. 46,000 in the two biggest departments alone this month fell below the national minimum wage after over for a decade of pay restraint. So this week's strike comes in the same work as our research showed that one in five DWP workers claimed benefits and one in 14 DWP offices had its own food bank. Two weeks ago, the Cabinet Office published their pay remit for the civil service, the lowest offer anywhere in the public sector. Nothing for 2022 to address the cost of living crisis and a derisory offer for 2023 that all other public sector unions in dispute had already rejected. So, yes, our members are angry and yes, they've had enough. Whilst any offer is better than no offer, and we clearly wouldn't have got that without our campaign so far. It clearly isn't good enough. So, in our current reballot to renew our strike mandate, we're determined to not just beat the threshold, but to absolutely smash it and send the strongest possible message to the government that now is the time to pay up. But it's clear that this government and millionaires hate the civil service. They continue to wage an ideological war on their own workforce. When you look at how badly they treat us, what other conclusion can you draw? The evidence stacks up. Ministers bullying their staff, giving our members the worst pay rise in the country, refusing to give them a backdated claim or lump sum like they've given everybody else, failing even to negotiate with us. How else do you explain it? Incessant attack by government ministers on their own workforce, by rob by Priti Patel, Suela Bravman, as they seek to implement their hated immigration policies against those fleeing war and persecution. In Rwanda and in small boats, policies by the way that PCS was proud to challenge to push back on and we will continue to do so. And who can forget the little post-it notes left by Jacob Rees-Mogg for our members. Sorry we missed you. An abhorrent bullying culture slowly being exposed. Praise for being key workers clapped on a Thursday night. Yet now we're treated treated worse than anybody else. So it's no wonder we're a bit fed up. In the words of our own General Secretary, Mark Sawatka, ministers should be set an example to other employers, not leading the race to the bottom. Everybody relies at some point in their lives on, on the civil service. It truly is cradle to grave. Who doesn't know someone who's claimed child benefit, purchased a home, ordered a passport, claimed some type of benefit, claimed furlough during the pandemic, needed a driving licence, driven on British roads, eaten British, British produce, our members deal with all those things and so many more undervalued underpaid demoralized they deserve to be able to feed their families as much as anybody else does our message is clear our strategy of targeted action is not going away in so many different areas including our passport office members who've been out for five weeks and just this week 400 hmrc members announced an 18-day strike we're now looking at submissions from right across the civil service combine that with this week's further all members action which which we know was huge and one thing is clear the government can't sustain it the pressure will continue to build the clock is ticking now is the time for them to talk but shamefully they'd rather take away our right to strike than give our own members a, a pay rise to help them through the cost of living crisis hopefully the house of lords has created a setback for them there and that's not something you hear every day is it so what are we going to do about it because clearly you know that it's all well and good us talking about all of these things but we have to have some sort of action we need maximum solidarity we need as much unity as it's possible to muster the most determined determined purpose in what has already been a long and hard struggle and that is why we have to unite like we've never united before we owe it to our members in struggle and we owe it to our class this week we've had international workers memorial day where we as a movement come together to remember those that have lost their lives at work renewing our commitment to fight for the living and make work safe. This long weekend we're celebrating workers every, everywhere for May Day or in, or Workers Day as it's known. The day we commemorate the struggles and gains made by workers and the labour movement across the world. What greater way to honour and celebrate both than by standing together at the time of these visions? attacks government and saying that enough is enough we won't stand by and see our pay cut our pensions terms and conditions um, decimated so let's send the strongest and loudest possible message to that billionaire sunak and his government of profiteers no to cuts no to privatization no to austerity no to racism and division the working class paid for your last crisis now it's time for the rich to pay up we need to be united with all other workers in struggle stand together, campaign together, defend workers, defend services to the public and defend the right to strike. Together we're always stronger, united we can push this rotten government back. Let's do everything we can to win together and on behalf of PCS I send you our solidarity. Thank you for listening.
1: What an incredible powerful speech Fran thank you so much for joining us and so powerful powerful to hear those stories from uh, the workers PCS represent and there's so many stories there that I'm sure many people on this call uh, really connect with at these difficult times so all of our solidarity to your members in PCS as your dispute continues Um, and I'm sure many people on this call will be out standing with you in solidarity. Um, we're now going to hear from Neve Sweeney, the NEU Deputy General Secretary. The NEU is demanding a fully funded above inflation pay rise for teachers and support staff and effective action on pay for supply and other educators. NEU betters have been taking action to, to demand better from government for teachers and for pupils. So I'm going to hand over to Neve now.
3: Thank you, Jess. Friends and colleagues, thank you for the invitation to speak today. I bring a message of thanks and solidarity from the National Education Union. Thank you as parents and as trade unionists for standing with us and supporting our action. Our teacher members in England are preparing to take their sixth day of national strike action for pay and funding on Tuesday. And our sixth form college members, their seventh day of action. They're striking not only for pay and funding, but for the future of state education and for the future of the education profession and for the future of this generation of children so let down by the government. So we thank you for your support and solidarity on our picket lines and rallies, for your messages of support. You, the wider trade union and labour movement, have shown us such support because you know that we are standing up for your children, for a better deal for working people and for a fairer and more just society. I've always been a proud trade unionist, but I've never been more proud of any EU members taking action this year. Many never having taken action before, many never having been on a picket or spoken at a rally, but they've come with their banners, their songs, their dogs and their children, 50,000 of them marching on Trafalgar Square. This generation of children will remember that their teachers and parents took a stand for them. Now, our pay talk's ended with the Department of Education five weeks ago. The below inflation offer they uh, put to us was rejected by 98% of NEU members. And since then, there has been nothing. Gillian Keegan, the Secretary of State for Education, has washed her hands of the matter and closed the door. Rishi Sunak, however, has said that the door is always open and has also announced that all young people should continue studying maths to 18. Well, here's a fact for you, Rishi. One in eight maths lessons is currently taught by a non-math specialist, such as the crisis in teacher recruitment and retention. And we suggest that you start with some one-to-one tutoring for Gillian Keegan, because she believes that her pay deal is funded, but it's not. Gillian believes that the two billion announced in the autumn statement covered the offer. It did not. Gillian believes that the National Tutoring Programme for COVID catch-up was a good deal. It was not. Millions of pounds has been returned to the Treasury because school leaders could not afford to match the government's funding requirements of 60-40. School leaders were not prepared to make staff redundancies to buy into the government scheme. School budgets have been cut by 9% in real terms since 2010. There is more money going into education, but prices have gone up and there are more pupils to educate. Education spending as a percentage of GDP in, in England has gone down from 5.8% to 4.3% to, since 2010. And school budgets are only being predicted to return to 2010 levels by 24 25 Teaching assistants, our paraprofessionals, are leaving education to work in supermarkets and hospitality because the wages are better. Teacher vacancies are up 93% on pre-pandemic figures, which means that we have the biggest recruitment and retention crisis education has ever seen. It isn't an NEU strike that is causing disruption to children's education, just as long waiting lists and appointment cancellations aren't caused by RCN and BMA strikes. It's the government's ideological decision to neglect public services. Children are being taught in the largest class sizes since records began, taught by numerous temporary teachers or by those not qualified in their subject. A quarter of secondary heads have said that they have already made cuts to GCSE and A-level courses because of budget pressures. They put out job adverts and get no applications. I spoke to a parent of a Year 7 pupil last week who has had 13 English teachers so far this year. How is that child supposed to do their best? Children are waiting years for CAMS referrals. Schools and colleges dealing with child poverty, hunger, rising levels of anxiety because social care and community support services have been decimated. Now, working in education shouldn't be detrimental to your family life, your mental health or your financial independence. It should be the most rewarding of careers. But if the government chooses to overwork and underpay its education professionals, overregulate them to the point of exhaustion and tragedy, what does it expect them to do? And that's why NEU members have in such large numbers rejected this government's insulting, unfunded offer, and why we are reballoting our members this term. But here's the crucial bit: it isn't just us. This term, NASUWT will also reballot. The National Association of Head Teachers will reballot, and for the first time in its history twenty four thousand school and college leaders in the Association of School and College Leaders uh, Association will ballot for strike action. not action short of strike action, strike action and to paraphrase their general secretary Jeff Barton, this is quite a moment, isn't it? This is a serious, urgent message that the government in its parallel universe appears not to be hearing. The NEU knows, like you, that if we want to live in a society that values all its citizens, has supportive, thriving communities, then it needs a government that values those who work in public services. It's time for the government to value education and value educators, and it's time for the government to pay up. Solidarity.
1: I could not agree more, Neve. Thank you for such an important update. Uh, on the fight that the NEU is facing, a fight for workers, for jobs and for, of course, young people's education. Um, Our next speaker is Matt Rack, the FBU General Secretary. The FBU are at the forefront of campaigning against the Tories' new proposed anti-trade union laws. And many of you will know Matt from his support for many socialist causes and campaigning over the years. So I'm really pleased to introduce Matt Rack.
4: Thanks very much, uh, Jess, and greetings, everyone, and greetings from the Fire Brigade Union uh, for May Day to workers across Britain and, and indeed, in- internationally. Uh, and we're very proud of our internationalist tradition in the uh, Fire Brigade Union. And I, I thank the two previous speakers for setting out two of the very important areas of struggle that workers in the UK are facing, uh, attacks on workers' Uh, Pay, particularly in the public sector currently, and the resistance that we have seen over the past year has been uh, inspiring. And uh, I want to touch on that, but I want to touch particularly on the theme that Jess has mentioned, the question of workers' rights and how we defend and extend them. Uh, In our own industry, the Fire and Rescue Service, we've actually settled on pay. Uh, Our members voted by uh, a turnout of 84% and a 96% vote to settle a pay dispute after voting previously uh, by uh, 88% for a strike, and in Northern Ireland, 94% for a strike. Uh, And the feedback that we've had is that our members uh, are... uh, content to to, to settle pay for this year, but don't think that is a resolved pay for the long term, but it puts us in a good position for the future to consolidate and to build our union's strength. But the background to that, we've said uh, in explaining that to our members that we have two elements that have been vital to settling uh, uh, the pay battle this year. First of all, we have the right to collectively bargain. We do not have a pay review body. Uh, And secondly, we have the right to strike. And those two elements have been absolutely crucial to making progress and to uh, forcing our employers to move uh, from their original pay offer of June last year. Uh, We now face threats to both of those elements. First of all, to a white paper that the government has introduced to threaten to remove our UK wide collective bargaining rights and to replace them in England, at least with a uh, pay review body. Uh, we aim to uh, uh, campaign and to, to defeat that attack. But secondly, the right to strike. And we can see with the latest minimum strikes, minimum service level bill currently uh, w- working its way through Parliament, that uh, there is a fundamental attack uh, on the right to strike of hundreds of thousands of, of workers, uh, meaning that workers uh, would be required to, in certain circumstances, work despite having voted for a strike. Uh, It's a hugely undemocratic attack on workers' rights, and it's part, indeed, of a 44-year onslaught in the UK on trade union rights. The position of our union, indeed, the position of the TUC, is that all anti-union legislation should be scrapped, and that's a demand we should place on the Labour government, particularly, however, that the two most recent bits of legislation, the 2016 Trade Union Act and this minimum service level Bill if it becomes law, must be immediately repealed by an incoming uh, Labour government. And those are the challenges that we have uh, set out before our, uh, our movement. Now, in the uh, TUC recently, and in letters to other affiliates, the FBU set out uh, some aims that we think uh, should be discussed. The aim of building a mass movement, a genuine mass movement, including a discussion around the issue of non-compliance With this legislation, should it be passed. And it is likely to be passed ultimately, despite the recent defeats in the House of Lords. The government has the numbers in the House of Commons to push this anti worker law through. Uh, Now, that has raised some eyebrows in the movement and raised some criticism of us uh, and others raising it. But our concern is that if the movement simply says that we will fight this politically and possibly legally, but we will then comply. We set ourselves up to endlessly fail. As each new piece of anti-union legislation is brought in, the trade union movement simply adapts uh, and adopts it. Uh, We're not saying that unions should set out to become martyrs. We're not saying that any individual union should isolate itself. What we're saying is that we need a more serious discussion about how we can build the sort of movement which can make this legislation irrelevant. And interestingly, despite the criticism that we faced on that front, within a matter of days at the Scottish TUC, we heard the new Scottish First Minister make a very important statement that the Scottish Government would never use a work order under this legislation if it becomes law. That's quite an important step for the First Minister of Scotland to raise, uh, and we have written to him to follow that up. We've also written to the First Minister in Wales and I'd ask comrades to think about what would happen if other politicians in such sort of circumstances adopted a similar position, if major mayors in London, in Manchester and elsewhere, other public sector employers began to raise the same, uh, the same um, sort of demand and make the same sort of pledge. The truth is, we don't have currently the sort of uh, movement that we had in 1971 and 72, which was able, through mass action, to defeat Anti union legislation. We've seen the trade union movement decline from something like 12 million at its uh, peak to just over 6 million today. And we don't shy away from facing up to the reality of that. Our task is to rebuild our movement, particularly to rebuild the movement in the workplaces, to rebuild the sort of shop stewards movement, which was able to bring the country to a standstill in 1972. And that may sound like a tall order. But I think on this uh, May Day weekend, we look back to the lessons of the past, to previous times where we have made significant breakthroughs. The new unionism that emerged at the the, the turn of the last century, where previously unorganised workers in their hundreds of thousands and in their millions joined trade unions for the first time and changed the face of industrial relations in this country. And I'll finish on this point, Chair that uh, the reason our uh, trade union rights are being attacked is because this government and indeed this system has nothing to offer working people other than endless attacks on our rights, endless attacks on our public services and endless attacks on our wages. They want to prevent workers from fighting back and that's why they introduce new legislation to seek to control us. But we have fought back in the past, workers today are fighting back. And if I finish on this one point about that new unionism that uh, introduced mass trade unionism for the first time in this country, it was also led by, in many cases, by socialists, by people who had a different vision of how things might be, who understood the need to organise in the workplace, but also to set out to workers the idea that it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to accept endless attacks on our rights and our living standards and the future of young people. We can offer the vision of an alternative society, a socialist society, and we should place that on our banners today and this May Day weekend. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much, Matt, for that powerful, powerful speech. Workers will absolutely fight back. I'm sure everyone on this call is a member of a trade union uh, already. If you're not, please join one. Uh, and as Matt said, organising in our workplaces is so important in this fight back. And we could not agree with you anymore on the the commitment of future Labour government must make uh, to repeal anti-trade union legislation. Uh, So I hope many of you on this call join me in holding the Labour leadership to account on this. Uh, Before we move on to our next speakers, I just want to thank our trade union representatives for taking the time out to speak to us today among all the many fights for thousands of workers that they are leading and organising. If you are enjoying these speeches so far and are appreciating these events, please do make a donation using the link that's been posted in the chat uh, to make sure we can keep bringing you more events like this. Uh, we're now going to move on to our international speakers. Uh, we're going to be starting with Miriam Amunke Kolke of Bartolina Cisa Resistance, who will update us on the ongoing struggles in Bolivia as people there are seeking to build a better society for the many, not the few, as part of the new advances in Latin America.
5: Over, over to you, Miriam. Thank you, comrades, and revolutionary greetings to you all. We're here to celebrate May Day to celebrate workers' struggles and achievements and the struggles of the oppressed around the world. It fills me with emotion to remember my day because as a trade unionist, I had great experiences of fighting for equality and justice in Bolivia. I would like to pay tribute to the struggle of the indigenous brothers and sisters who in the past joined the ranks of the highly politicized and militant mining workers that have given us invaluable lessons in popular struggles, but also they suffered outright massacres confronting military dictatorships. In 1967, the Katavi and Siglo mining workers decided to contribute one day's wages to support Che Guevara. And on St. John's night, June 24, the Barrientos dictator by orders of the USA sent the army to massacre them. He set up military bases in mining towns under the pretext of fighting communism, banned the trade unions and reduced miners' wages. The same year, Barrientos and the USA carried out the assassination of Che Guevara. When General Juan Jose Torres became president, he withdrew military troops from the mines restored wages, trade unions, and a popular assembly was born. However, another dictator, Coronel Banzer, took power. Torture, killings, and disappearance were his trademark. And in Argentina, as part of Blanc Condor, General Torres was assassinated. I am myself a survivor of the Achocaya concentration camp. We lived 18 years of military dictatorships until four Courageous Mining Sisters defeated the Banser regime and in 1982, democracy was recovered and the neoliberal period began. IMF measures followed and with decree 21060, in the name of workers redeployment, more than 30,000 mining families were thrown out onto the streets. I vividly remember that at the same time here in the UK, In 1984, the historic miners' strike began, which became one of the most bitter industrial disputes. In 2006, the movement towards socialism with Evo Morales won the elections, and he took a historic step to dignify the indigenous people who for centuries lived exploited, exploited and marginalized. Now, the great majority is empowered could walk the streets that were previously forbidden to them. Evo never had privileges. He, he was born and raised in the countryside and became one of the best presidents of Bolivia. And every May day, we remember Evo's historic decision when he, with no fear, nationalized the natural resources. Before Ebo, Bolivia belonged to transnationals, not to Bolivians. The IMF, even had its offices in the Bolivian Central Bank. Ivo defended our sovereignty. He expelled the US ambassador, US and USA when they intended to turn Bolivia into another Yugoslavia and the historic process of change began. Ivo changed our lives. Now, we recognize that the world crisis affects economies in general and Bolivia is no exception to this and the reactionaries are taking advantage of the economic hiccup, trying to once again destabilize the country. President Luis Arce assures everybody that with the approval of the new laws, an immediate solution will be given to the economy. He also assures us that he will continue with industrialization programs diversifying the economy, and the substitution of imports. The government has just increased wages up to 3% and 5%, and we look forward to more job opportunities and to continue improving the living and working conditions of Bolivians. We oppose any attempts to introduce neoliberal measures dictated by the IMF or other international organizations. We salute the cooperation and integration agreement signed between Bolivia and Venezuela. This strengthens the unity of our peoples and reinforces regional integration. As many of you said, the mass mobilizations defeated the 2019 coup in Bolivia, and the movement towards socialism returned to the government. And this has been a true inspiration to the left around the world. Now, We want to make sure that President Luis Arce stays on the left, implementing the MAS working plan. As Leonardo Loza, senator of the Tropico of Cochabamba said, a lot of blood was shed to build up the process of change in Bolivia and this process cannot be reversed. Only by following the anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist struggle, we will achieve the liberation of our people. Because imperialism does not rest and is still intending to take over Latin America's natural resources and Bolivian lithium with the pretext of being a matter of national security for USA. They spend trillions running the war machine, invading countries, installing military bases, imposing criminal sanctions and blockades. They have no morals. We say loud to them, Latin America is not your backyard. Last We send fraternal greetings to all workers in the struggle against austerity, NHS workers, teachers, public sector workers. The right to strike is a basic right for all workers and should be respected. And yes, we will also fight the anti-refugee bill. Workers of the world, unite to break the chains of injustice. Long live internationalism. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Miriam. Long live internationalism. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're so grateful for you for joining us to take the time out uh, to talk about anti-colonial, anti imperialist and workers' struggles in Bolivia. Solidarity to you. Um, it isn't only in Latin America that people are resisting and defeating the far right. We've also got today and next up speaking is Varsha Gand- Gandakota, of progressive international who will now speak to us about some of their key campaigns uh, over the years. Over to you, Vasha.
6: Thank you, Jess. And thanks, everyone who's um, spoken before me. It's been incredible to be able to hear all of you. Mayday may greetings to everyone from Hyderabad, India. Um, I like just mentioned I'm the policy coordinator at Progressive International, um, where, of course, we're engaged in this project of trying to see what internationalism for the 21st century looks like. Speaking here from India, I don't think it would be wrong to say that many of us here are contending with um, a certain kind of lull and despair where we feel like victims of history rather than protagonists of history. And, you know, in fact, just the day before yesterday, the Mayday gift that we got from our government is that the Indian government de-recognized two postal unions simply for contributing money to the farmers' protests, which I'm sure many of you heard about, which won and managed to repeal uh, anti-privatization you know, ripple privatization laws in agriculture after a sustained movement of two years. And the other charge against these unions was about purchasing books from uh, the Communist Party of India Marxist office in, in New Delhi. So, you know, I, I do think we're contending with this moment where it feels like national liberation movements that should have led to bright sovereign futures gave us authoritarian rulers instead with fascist ideas flowing um so easily, shockingly easily through the bloodstream of our society. And I don't say this as uh, an easy condemnation, right? I do spend a lot of time thinking about why it's so difficult for so many of us here today to uh, believe that a radical alternative is possible. And I know that some of the speakers before me have spoken about that. I think this is quite true for quite a few other countries, not just in the global south as well, and leftists and other parts of the world. And in fact, it's, you know, the time that we live in is is one where it's actually the right way that's become the side with the, the big ideas. I know, you know, David Graeber used to speak quite a lot about this, but this wasn't always... Um, this wasn't always the case, right? For quite some time, actually, the attack line used to be that socialist revolutionaries were the ones that were too ut- utopian—that we didn't understand human nature, that we had abstract ideals. But you see this—you um, know—shift kind of from the late '90s, where you get the utopian right, and they become the ones with the big ideas. They point to the fall of the USSR and say, "We triumphed. You know, the alternative literally failed. Uh, and so we are the ones that we have a vision for the future. So of course you get structural adjustment, that handcuffs, same governments the global south prevents them from charting their own history a point about sovereignty that Miriam spoke so uh articulately about you get extractive multinationals of course that force workers to surrender to global supply chains rather than at the cost of uh prosperity of their own communities and you essentially get this kind of small group of uh kind of trained elites that say yeah shut up and listen to us because you know even if it's complete wretchedness that we're putting you through now at some point you're actually going to get this utopian future where there's going to be a lot of prosperity and the right wing today I think is very good at appropriating the vocabulary of the left and it's particularly true of course in India you see these tactics um, used by the government but you see it used by right-wing parties in many parts of the global south you know from Turkey, Brazil under Bolsonaro, to the Philippines to uh, urban and Hungary and to speak from my own context you know more our current prime minister Modi is particularly good, and his party, the BJP, is particularly good at kind of using a, um, a post colonial language in service of essentially renewed ethno-nationalism that's something that must be resisted and as we're discussing questions of internationalism I would you know ask us to also think about how decolonization is being used in all of our movements today and what does decolonization really mean if it doesn't come with a material commitment to socialism because then it becomes a reactionary ideology of its own that Quite easily can slip into its own brand of fascism, right? So here in India, again, you know, while the language is all about supposedly a forgotten past where everybody lived in prosperity, uh, their project is one that simply continues a concentration of wealth from the many to the few. So inequalities have been, you know, starker than ever before, and Indian society is far more polarized than at any other time since I'd say our independence. But as distressed citizens, as workers living in degraded conditions, as communities that are humiliated, if we do not have a notion of a socialist future, why would we sacrifice what little time and what little luxury we get to get, you know, tiny reforms? And in this sense, I'd say what we're resisting is not just a theft of labor, but also essentially a theft of our dreams. And, you know, the first piece of great gratitude that I would have uh, as we're talking about workers uniting... Across the world, across sectors, languages, and borders, is that it's really work in throughout history. It's really workers uniting that have gotten us and can continue to get us to believe that we can make our own history. And of course, one can't do that by merely repeating it. Right? We could meet on Zoom every day and talk about hope and ambition until um, until we have blown the face. But I doubt it would engender. Um, our uh, kind of faith in our collective capacity to overcome the present. So when I think about how change enters the air of a society, I want to speak a bit about the effect that I think unions and workers uniting has in society. For instance, I'm often asked about uh, political education. It's obviously a question that we here in India are contending with in quite a serious manner. um, As we see a reactionary xenophobic, you know, racist rhetoric win with members of our family our neighbors our leaders really enter the kind of air and i would say think of political education simply as um Political exposure, right? I mean, you have the worker strikes in London that have, uh, and across the UK that have gone viral, not just in the UK but across the world. And as inflation takes over the UK and people are faced with, you know, real cost of living crisis, there's of course been, as we all know and as you've all talked about before, a tremendous amount of effort from politicians to say that an increase in wages is will actually lead to an increase in inflation. Now, you don't need to organise, you know, economics courses to convert people to your side, right? All one had to do, including people here in India, was listen to McLynch at the time of the rail workers strike to realize that the argument is wrong. It is working people throughout history that have developed the sharpest understanding of, you know, participatory democracy through collective political action. And it's again working people that have done the sharpest articulation of it to the rest of the world. Now, it's a different, you know, matter and a different tragedy, of course, that it does not become theory and reach our textbooks and schools because... Workers are constantly fighting against traditional intellectuals and that are trying to say, hey, your lived experience suggests one thing, but that's wrong. Um, but I think where we can see it is actually in the enemy's reactions, right? So the story that I began with of the two, of the derecognition of the two trade unions in, in India, can be understood now and seen in a different light if you read a different announcement that was made at the beginning of the year, where a joint platform of 10 central trade unions, where millions of millions of members, if you think about all of the uh, central trade unions coming together across different sectors, essentially announced a year-long agitation uh, against what they termed an anti- anti-worker and anti-national policies of the government. So they were talking not just about a scrapping of labor codes that allowed for precarity, uh, ending privatization, guaranteeing work, but they were also talking about migrant workers, they were also talking about urban-rural divide. And so this, of course, you can see how Workers Uniting is terrifying for right-wing governments, because in one fell swoop, they're able to articulate the entire kind of fascist project of the government as not just a theft of labor, but again, like I said, a theft of Dreams, um, and just if I have a couple of minutes, I'd like to say you know a little bit. There are other cracks in the wall that I think working in transnational projects has helped illustrate for me, and that I've learned so much from. For example, with the Make Amazon Pay campaign, which of course brought together workers from around the world and brought the, and got workers to strike together in two hundred locations, workers in forty different warehouses going on strike together to say you know we recognize the common enemy and we're going to organize across borders which, of course, is incredible. But there were other interesting pieces that I learned, right? For example, that sometimes it's simply about scaling the struggle up spatially. So Polish workers and German workers or the U.S. workers and Mexican workers in border areas, realizing that they have to make sure that they walk out or strike at the same time so that Amazon company could not then reroute its traffic through facilities on the other side of the border to neutralize this impact of labor resistance. They didn't actually need the rest of the kind of 45 unions to go on strike at the same time. They did find and I know this is the logic of port resistance. For example, that's always existed through history, but it did lead to new collaborations that I think were very, very interesting to watch. Um, and that's, of course, again true for um, scaling up struggles sectorally. Again, a tried and tested method. Many platforms depend not just on large numbers of workers that they can easily replace, but also on a small pool of workers um, with comparatively scarce skill set like software engineers, which a lot of whom India provides, um, who have not traditionally unionized, but we're now seeing like the Alphabet Workers Union and Amazon Employees for Climate Justice that are coming up uh, in this kind of growing section of what one would call highly skilled workers. So the process, I think, you know, of political mobilization and something I'm so grateful for as we talk about um, workers uniting across borders, is also because it includes confronting um, the very real contradictions of, of each of our movements. And what I mean by that is I think we all simply have to accept that despite being essentially what I think we would call all of ourselves a movement of the future, right? Because we have a certain vision of where we want to go. Despite being movements of the future, our organizing is constrained by um, the social contradictions and the social prejudices of today. So in India, for example, you simply cannot defeat capitalism without destroying caste. And you could say this about racism, you could say this about patriarchy. But when you start to work together, it becomes really hard to ignore the fact that your fellow comrade has come to a meeting with her child because there's no childcare in the neighborhood. Or that someone cannot be sent a pamphlet that you've managed to draw up because they're illiterate or they speak a language that's not English and that's being ignored by urban elite. Um, So to end, I think, you know, I obviously want to end with tremendous amount of gratitude to the leaders and union members here today for giving us, I think, this vision and giving us the faith in, uh, in building a radical alternative. Um, and I'll simply say that the line that I often think of is, uh, is, you know, an injury to one as a concern to all, which admittedly is not the most poetic line if one is looking for kind of quotes through uh, Labour history. But um, I, I, I do like it quite a bit because simply as a view of the world, I think it's quite fitting if our question as those on the left, as internationalist is... Um, How can we build a world where we all feel morally invested in one another, where our project is essentially a defense of the dignified life for all? Thank you so much for giving me the chance to speak here today. Thank you so much, Varsha. That was an
1: incredible, incredible contribution. Uh, Really appreciate you joining our call today. Um, our next speaker is from Ghana. I'm really pleased to introduce Gurke Tano of the Third World Network, a brilliant campaign for social justice.
7: Thank you very much, Jess. And uh, thank you to all of uh, the Arise organization for putting together this important uh, discussion. Um, so may day solidarity to everybody. Greetings from Ghana. Um, comrades, I think that um, there has never been a more urgent time to give the greatest possible emphasis to workers' unity across the world. I think there has never been a more urgent time to insist and to show that workers in the global south and in the global north either fall together or rise together. We see, for example, one great expression of this cost of living, global cost of living crisis in terms of the way in which those who dominate the energy market, those who dominate the food economy, have used their, their, their power to ra- raise prices for everyone. They have not said that because we are multinational companies from the global north, when the price of global energy goes up, we are going to uh, you know, give more pay to our local energy workers or to local people, uh, you know, our, our local working classes, so that they can better afford food and so on. On the contrary, any profit from the global south goes to intensify the strength of the multinationals, of global capital, of the ruling classes in the, in the global north, to even squeeze further, to undermine the rights that our workers have won in the past. And to continue and vice versa as well, to, to intensify the super exploitation taking place in, in, in the global south as well. And for that reason, that, that emphasis on our unity is important because the, one of the mechanisms by which the global ruling classes are able to prosecute this agenda is not simply because of their monopoly over productive resources, over the wealth that all of us you know, contribute in creating for society and for the world. It is also true, as others, others have said, including Basha, who just finished speaking from India, it is also true that they invest a lot in weaponizing any possible division among us. We see it in terms of the conflict that is taking place at the, global, at the level of global imperial uh, competition in Ukraine. We see it in the, in the ratcheting up of tensions in uh, Taiwan, for example. We also see it the length and breadth of the global south. In the Sahel, we see what the, 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 the role of U.S. imperialism, French imperialism, EU allies like Germany, the crisis that is causing there. we see it in Sudan, where the exploitation of ethnic divisions, the exploitation of the fact that different fractions of the ruling class control different assets and are seeking to, you know, uh, uh, extend that control over the whole uh, entire project uh, in in Sudan, you know, is leading to the bloody civil war that that we're seeing right now. And that bloody civil war entraps both the ordinary people of Sudan and British workers, for example, all those who are in the NHS, who are in Sudan, those who have um, a dual nationality those who have multicultural families, and so on and so forth. So, comrades, it's important for us, stressing this division, to be able to counter it with what will be the basis of the unity that, that, that we have. And I think that for that, we, 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 keep have, we have to go back and remind ourselves of what many of the previous speakers have, have, have emphasized, which is that our power lies in the fact that we are, the majority of working people in the world are responsible for creating the wealth of the world. Even though we recognize that that wealth has been so, you know, unequally grabbed, that eight people in the world have more wealth than half the entire population of the world. That the three richest men in the world have more wealth than every single woman in Africa combined. That's almost 700 million people. These are the extremities of inequality, which also reflects in the unequal circumstances that different sections of the global global working classes confront. So there's endemic poverty in Africa. Nigeria, a country of only one-sixth the population of India, has overtaken India as the, single, the one single national location of the greatest concentration of absolute poor people in the world. In Africa, informality, precarity, earning less than $1 a day is, is, is rife. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that we ought to point to those who are in the formal sector, those who are in more stable conditions, those who have the right to unionize and to strike, to say that they are beneficiaries of this super-exploitation, that informal workers... Are getting. Not at all. In the same way as, you know, whatever profits are being made is not given free to those who are in the formal sector, whether in the global north or in the global south. likewise we, we have that. And unless we're able to put, put, put our agenda for fighting back for economic justice, for fighting back for greater equality, for fighting back for building our organization, our decision-making power, so that we begin to take increasing control of what happens at work to ensure that there's workplace justice, unless we're able to marry that, with a call for radical equality among all the ranks of the working classes themselves, I think we will confront problems. We have to make it our daily fight against racism. We have to fight against patriarchy and women's oppression. We have to fight against LGBT abuse and uh, 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 oppression in places like Africa and everywhere else. And of course, we have to fight against ethnic conflict, religious sectarianism, and so on. And for that, I think, again, we have to see that it is not simply a a good idea. It is impossible if you are in Sudan today or if you're in East Africa or West Africa or wherever else in the global South, to disconnect the fight with a decent livelihood, with, with, with the fight for climate justice, for example, and for environmental and ecological sustainability. Because our rulers, you know, I, I understand what Miriam and others have said about the challenges that, uh, you know, really the, the unequal power, even within the ruling, the ruling classes, implies for some of the radicalization that occasionally some minority of the global, the global South, uh, uh, you know, uh, leadership those who find themselves into, in governmental office under pressure and on the basis from movements from below can have progressive, progressive politics. But ultimately, we also have to remind ourselves that our ruling class, as long as they're workers to exploit, will always find a way to do so. If, be it in partnership with global capital or be it on their own terms domestically, they will always find a way to push conditions down and, and so on. In other words, we have to be alert to the fact that the, the basis of our, of, our, of, our, of our unity, which is our class politics, Our class orientation and in terms of our location within the the, the world production system is also the the basis of of our unity socially as well, in terms of the rights of the informal, the rights of the weakest, the rights of women, and so on. Unless we scale up everybody, and unless we are able to stand together to deliver gains for each of us, and unless within our own ranks we have a notion of affirmative action, that those who are the most vulnerable and the weakest in in terms of, you know, must gain equality and so that we all rise uh, uh, together, unless we have universal demands which, 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 which insists that no matter where you are in the world, there's a basic minimum of food security, of nutrition that you have, of education, of public services, of health, of jobs, of incomes that you have. And that is deliverable in every single society. A country like Ghana, where I'm speaking from now, is one of those at the front line of the new uh, uh, global debt crisis, just like Zambia, just like Sri Lanka, just like Pakistan. A country like Ghana has to spend about 70% or more of, 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 of total revenue at this point in time servicing uh, you know, uh, 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 international debts, okay? But at the same time, we find, and the ruling class and the government will tell us that this is a national crisis. Everybody has to chip in and so on. But we know how this debt came about. We know that the debt came about because increasing sections of our own ruling classes are also part of the, the shadow banking and shadow financial regime, the investment bankers who profiteer from selling debt and all kinds of financial engineering, and so on. And when they have dug everybody into a hole, they they turn around and try to grab workers' pensions, raise taxes, raise all kinds of use, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, service uh, 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 user charges, so that we pay back for for, for their greed, for their reckless, recklessness, and so on. And in the process, that will put them in back in the good books of the credit rating agencies. They will be able to borrow more, reignite their their, their, their nefarious and evil process of profiteering, and their, and, and and live happily ever after. Like we saw even in advanced countries, uh, advanced regions of the world, like Greece, in the Eurozone crisis, workers who can never recover. You know, there are workers who will lose their lives, they will lose their health, their whole livelihoods will be shattered uh, on a long-term basis uh, uh, from these kinds of things. And unless, again, comrades, we we are able to join this struggle for, for economic justice, for workers' power, with the struggle for the climate, the struggle for food security and so on. We act, we risk dividing our, 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 ourselves even more perniciously, especially if we don't build un, uh, uh, movements which, right from the start, fight on the single issues and the concrete issues, but also seek to link them in in, in, a, in a systemic, in in, a, in, a, in an agenda of, of system change. Because if not, farmers who are driven to the to the ground, pastoralists and herding communities who are driven to the ground, are at each, each other's throats. If not, the informal sector uh, uh, where street workers are driven uh, uh, into a hole where those who have formal jobs are are not able to find find ways to connect with them. They may defend their pensions, but then uh, 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 have nothing to offer to those who who are excluded from that that minimum security that pensions, for example, offer. So, comrades, we also need demands that ensure that that unity can be built. But above all, comrades, in addition to building our movements for social justice, in addition to building our workers' organizations to fight for workplace justice, in addition to building the, the, uh, all of this, we also need political organization explicitly based on our classrooms. Because we need a home, a permanent home, where all the best of the activists from the Women's Liberation Movement, from the Climate Justice Movement, from the Anti-Poverty Movement, from every other uh, aspect of, of, the, of the anti-racist movement, and so on and so forth, we need a permanent home or any number of permanent homes where all these activists are working together, are cross-fertilizing each other, are learning from each other, teaching from each other. We need a home where when struggles go down, there are activists who are, because of the fact that they've kept the memory of those struggles alive, because of the fact that they have been in the forefront of, of, of advancing those struggles, are also able to keep hope alive, are also able to connect with new sources of resistance, are also able to help regenerate uh, uh, the, the workers' movement and, to, and the movement for global justice. In other words, we are, we are in, a posi- in a situation where you cannot increase property rights on land or on natural resources all the profiteering that goes on without uh, launching severe attacks on the rights of ordinary people. And you cannot prosecute that, those attacks on ordinary people without ensuring that you are weaponizing and manufacturing and regenerating every possible division that exists. You cannot do that without generating a sense that, that we are all hopeless and we are powerless and we can't confront this global jug- juggernaut and so on and so forth. So, comrades, I think that our lesson, our report to that to be to recreate, regenerate, re-energize, renew all the best of the traditions that over 200 years of struggle over the 130 years or so of international May Day has culminated in, has taught us, and those are the struggles that we need to take we need to take forward. Those of us in Ghana, when we celebrate May Day tomorrow, we'll be joining every single worker, we'll be doing so in the name of every single uh, section of the working people everywhere in the world, but we'll also be doing so with some specific emphasis on the question of our climate change, on the way in which you know, waste pickers and garbage workers, the so-called flotsam and jetsam in the, sl- in, the, in, 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 in the world of slums that the American socialist, the late American socialist Mike Davis uh, uh, talked about, will be putting forward their struggles. We'll be putting forward the struggles of gig workers, like the, the, the precarious uh, uh, bolts, food couriers, and so on and so forth, to show that even among the weakest, so-called weakest, disorganized sections of, of working people, there you can find lessons of how to fight back in the 21st century. That as long as people are part of the process of creating wealth for others, it gives them a structural location, not simply to unite with others, not simply to 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 resist the onslaughts of, of, of capital, of imperialism, of 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 climate predators, but it gives us the basis for building the kind of unities, the organizations that uh, you know uh, where, where working people can control, take it into our communities, and building the unities uh, for the kind of political, the distillation of political parties, and and uh, and uh, those who are. Uh, uh, you know, uh, championing the idea of revolutionary revolutionary socialism. I think Matt from uh, the Fireworkers, from the Firefighters Union in Britain, uh, you know, put it far more eloquently than i I'm, I'm able to do so today. I just simply want to affirm the point that he made and the universal relevance of, of the lesson that he talked about in terms of socialists being able to offer a vision, not simply to the crisis of the moment, but in terms of the systemic crisis that is engulfing us with the rise of the right, with the rise of racism, with the rise of war and conflict, with the, with the rise of the environmental crisis of debt and, and the, the cost of living crisis. Comrades, as long as we fight, we have, we have a chance, but that fight must be accompanied by radical leaps in terms of our learning, in terms of our vision, in terms of our strategies. And I'm very, very glad and proud uh, to be part of a meeting today that puts those things to the fore and equips us better to take that, those struggles forward in practical ways tomorrow and, and, and beyond uh, m- 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 May Day tomorrow as well. Long live internationalism. Long live global justice. The world we have everything in the world uh, 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 to win. And as and as, uh, and as a, a couple of great people said a uh, 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 hundred and more years ago, we have nothing to lose but our chains and by uh, and the filth and destruction. And the divisions that are being visited upon up us. Together, we can rise. We can forge a new life. We can forge a new vision. We can forge new new uh, elements of collaboration, of 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 of, of harmonisation of our interests. New humanities, where we see, indeed, like Vasha said, that uh, you know, when you touch one, you touch all. Those that sense of solidarity. I think we, 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 uh, an event like this helps us to bring it uh, alive, gives it a real practical meaning. Forward with that. Let's move on with that from today into tomorrow and beyond. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for that excellent contribution, and I think I'm going to start uh, mine in a similar way. My name's Sam Browse. Um, I'm uh, one of the organisers behind Arise, um, who have organised the meeting today. Um, yeah, and I want to I want to start in a kind of similar manner, um, and say that the call for unity and the struggle for socialism um, in today's rally title, I think, is at least as, or the most important, as it's ever been. Because this May Day, as we're faced with an economic crisis, a profound crisis in our public health um, and social care services and a climate crisis of unprecedented scale and unrelenting urgency, we're seeing a ferocious response from the boss class in pursuit of their interests. That response is the rising cost of living as their speculation and profit hoarding drive up prices and drive down living standards, not only in the UK, uh, but across the globe. It's the rising racism we're seeing as migrants and refugees are scapegoated by the same governments responsible for stoking the wars and climate disasters that people are fleeing. It's the rising bigotry, as we see across the world, attacks on the rights and bodily autonomy of women and LGBTQ plus people. It's the rising geopolitical tensions, for example, as bombs continue to rain down on Yemen, as the Palestinians endure ever-growing oppression, and as the new Cold War thaws, intensifying the threat Of nuclear war in eastern europe bringing the doomsday clock one strike closer to midnight and it's the rise in global temperatures we've seen as everywhere capitalist governments vacillate in the face of a climate and nature emergency that's seen sea levels rise species exterminated and homes and livelihoods destroyed throughout all of that runs one thread and that's the defense of an economic and political system that prioritises profits against the interests of the overwhelming global majority of people and planet. And where the business-as-usual parties of reaction are incapable of doing that, the boss class unites around the far-right and fascists. And we've seen that, for example, in Italy, in the inheritors of Mussolini, Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia. Socialism or barbarism isn't just a slogan. It's the choice that we're currently living through. So we have our work cut out for us, But where the cost of living racism, bigotry, global um, temperatures and tensions are rising, so too are people. Just look at the wave of strike action that started last July. That torch of resistance still burns in the hands of the PCS, the RCN and NUU, who we've heard from today, who fight for all of us as they defend their pay and conditions and the future of our public services too. And look at all those who have taken to the streets against the fascists, who are shouting, say it loud, say it clear, refugees are welcome here, or they're drowning out the hatred of the homophobes. And look at the tens of thousands of protesters demanding the climate and nature emergency be treated with the urgency it requires. In response, as Matt Rat mentioned earlier, the bosses are trying to beat us back with assaults on our right to resist, with anti-trade union legislation and also attacks on the right to protest. And actually, I want to talk specifically and send our solidarity specifically to Morgan Trowland and Marcus Decker today. They're two climate activists whose sentences combined run to an unprecedented five years and seven months simply for the act of participating in a non-violent direct action. They should receive the solidarity of every socialist and progressive, and I hope we can send our solidarity to them today. Uh, we must mobilise all parts of our movement to fight this assault. And We only have to look elsewhere, elsewhere in the world to see they can be defeated. And um, We've heard about the Indian farmer strike today and the example from Bolivia on this call. But most recently, just look at the, um, the recent presidential results in Colombia, which overturned decades of subservience to empire. And of course, in Brazil, where Lula, who was unjustly jailed on trumped-up charges, is now once again providing le- leadership not only to Brazil, and I think this is important, but progressive opinion across the globe. So to win all these struggles means unity. We must refuse to be divided and stand with every worker under attack, whether they're migrants, women, LGBTQ+, disabled, people of colour, or simply striking to protect themselves from low pay, poor conditions and insecurity. And we need unity in action too, um, with far more coordinated initiatives on the left that build solidarity for our shared struggles and our shared demands for socialist solutions to the crisis we face, as the last speaker spoke about at length. And we need unity across borders too, continuing to support our comrades Um, across the world, from Palestine to Peru, who are fighting for justice, democracy and their right to a life free of exploitation. And it's fantastic to have speakers from across the world on the call today. I'll finish on this. Angela Davies said that optimism is a political act. You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Well, it may seem seem strange to say, because I think we've been through a lot. These last few years. But on this May Day, I am optimistic because it's not only possible, it's necessary. And across the globe, we are seeing people forcing that transformation. We have to join them. And to paraphrase another giant of our movement, workers of the world unite. You've nothing to lose but your chains and you have a world to win. Solidarity, comrades.
1: Thanks so much, Sam. It's always great to see a familiar face, part of the Arise team. Once again, if you have a chance, it'd be great if you could uh, donate to arise to make sure we can keep hosting events like this the link is in the chat and do keep telling us uh, where you're tuning in from and um, we've got a few more speakers before we wrap up for the day um, so i'm going to move on to our next speaker and really pleased to introduce ronan burtonshaw the editor of tribune so handing over to uh, ronan now and also make sure that you subscribe to tribune which is a publication uh, essential reading for every socialist activist
8: Thank you very much, Jess, and also thank you to Matt and Sam and the rest of the Arise team and the organisers today. Um, Good afternoon to everyone who's, who's on the call and listening in. I was thinking this morning uh, that last year, around this time, we were putting together a Tribune issue uh, talking about the impending strike wave and how that was going to shape so much of the politics in 2022 and and beyond. Uh, It's fair to say probably that the strike wave we actually got was far beyond our expectations uh, it was much much larger and more profound, and its impact on the labour movement and the context of British politics uh, was wider than, than we'd anticipated. From posties to rail workers, teachers, civil servants, nurses, doctors, university workers, and obviously beyond, um, there are so many who've been on strike in this last year or so. It, it is difficult to name to name them all hundreds of thousands of people have been on picket lines for the first time in their lives. And the landscape of the Labour movement has been upturned to the extent that there's nothing remotely comparable to this at any time since at least the 1980s and probably early in the 1980s uh, as well. I think if you'd said to any of us a few years ago that that, uh, that might happen, Uh, We would have claimed it as uh, hopelessly optimistic that there would be that level of successful strike ballots in trade unions in Britain. Obviously, one part of why it has happened is the cost of living crisis, which is in reality another attempt to impose onto working people an economic crisis of the capitalist system uh, and uh, to further degrade the living standards of millions of workers across the country. But another part of the reason, the more optimistic reason why it has happened is the hard work of thousands of ordinary people, of workers in communities across Britain who've organised their workplaces, who've taken the arguments on the need to strike and to fight back uh, into their workplaces, who've won people over, who've got strike ballots out, who've got people out on picket lines for the first time in their lives, who've explained how picket lines work. Uh, who have communicated their messages both locally in their communities to national audiences through the media. and We all owe a huge amount to those people uh, who have taken part in those actions, who've led them and who have uh, said that they're not prepared to accept another uh, attack on their living standards and they prepare to, to fight back instead. It is a historic moment, but it also leads, I think, to quite a lot of challenges. For those of us in the the socialist movement, Uh, it hasn't been a uniform wave of strikes. Uh, The private sector, as we have seen, has had far less strike activity uh, than the public sector. And even in those places where there has been mass strike action in the private sector, places like Royal Mail, We've seen an absolutely voracious corporate leadership uh, try to attack and destroy the CWU, one of Britain's biggest unions uh, in that company, uh, and even threatened to drive the whole organisation into administration if workers didn't accept permanently reduced working standards, uh, pay and conditions. And in the public sector, we've also seen the difficulties where you've got a government that is committed to austerity and to a policy of low wages, a government that has overseen already in the austerity era the largest fall in living standards in recorded history, the longest wage stagnation in, record, in recorded history, and these things force us to come to terms with both the opportunities and the limits of what we have seen uh, in the strike wave, that. It is the case, um, as I know our comrades in in the education sector um, are leading the way on, uh, and we've seen some of this in the health sector and so on, that we need unified action, that it is not going to be enough in the context of uh, government and uh, a system rigged against workers to have fights in workplace by workplace on their own, that we need to have uh, more efforts to bring together strikes beyond those boundaries uh, and to win battles inside our trade unions to strike and, and fight together, and that it's not going to be enough to do all of this without political campaigning. And the need to make an argument to people more generally in society, not least the millions of workers who are not in trade unions because of the nature, particularly in the private sector, um, of the deterioration of trade unions over decades, of how hard it is and how hard it has been made to to organise. And part of that, as Matt Rack referenced earlier, is uh, the landscape, the legal landscape um, that has been created for trade unions. And it's a major challenge that we all have to confront uh, at this point, starting from what Matt referenced, you know, the, the victory of the TUC in the 70s against that Industrial Relations Act. Of course, They didn't wait long before coming again. And really, it was starting from the 1980s. There's been an attempt to fundamentally change what trade unionism is about. And the ideological project of the Tories, which was not overturned by Blair and the Labour government either, uh, was to change the nature of what a strike was, to stop it from being about uh, workers stopping production and to change it into something that looks more like a protest. A few people with pickets outside uh, a place of work. And they did this by breaking union independence and making it so that the state had a right to come into our unions and set the terms around how strikes would, would operate, by criminalizing solidarity, making it illegal to have secondary actions where workers could uh, shut down production by working with other people along the the production chain who are facing the same conditions by imposing the thresholds most recently in the 2016 Trade Union Act, thresholds which, by the way, if they were imposed in the political system, would see hardly anyone elected in the upcoming local elections, Um, thresholds which are far more severe for trade unions than they are for politicians. They've attacked the right to access uh, workplaces, which has made it so difficult in places like Amazon and major multinationals to organize When we look at strikes like what has happened in france and the big battles there well they've made those next to impossible here through uh through stopping political strikes and they've also attacked collective agreements the most you know the final nail in that coffin really as as matt as as alluded to is the minimum service uh law and we have to be pretty clear on why they are trying to do this If you look at the rail, if you look at the fire uh, rescue services, if you impose a law like this, which says that the government has a right to set a minimum service that must be provided throughout, uh, what you essentially do, as well as conscripting workers who want to strike to work against their will, as well as uh, leaving a a, a situation where uh, services must be kept open meaning that workers don't have a right anymore to shut down uh, production, as well as forcing workers to cross their own picket lines and picket lines of their colleagues or face the bankruptcy of the trade unions. What they're trying to do, again, is to fundamentally change what a strike is. To say, yeah, you can strike and show your protest and your opposition, but you can't shut things down. And the power of workers comes from the ability to shut things down. And it always has. It's the, the backbone of the trade union movement. Uh, whether we can uh, fight and defeat that law and overturn that whole idea of what trade unions are, are about, which has been pushed by the ruling class in this country for so long, I think will determine whether this strike wave is seen as a lasting last of a dying wasp or a genuine renewal or the beginning of a new stage of uh, trade union, labor, militant activity uh, in this country. Uh, I have a lot of faith partly because of the contributions of people on this this call and their trade unions uh, and their activist groups like the NHS workers say no, who I know are coming up next. Um, uh, I've great faith in our ability to do that and to make it the latter case that this will be a period of renewal. But if that is to be the case, we have to be serious that this is the beginning of a long struggle to rebuild, to revitalise, to reorganise the labour movement and trade unions, and to win a rebalancing of power and wealth away from capital, from corporations, from big business and the rich, and towards people who work for a living. So I very much hope that we're all committed to that. I think if we are, and we fight in a way that recognises how long this battle is ahead, but also that it's the only battle that makes a society worth living in, uh, I've got great faith that we can win it. So happy May Day, comrades, and uh, I'll see you all on the picket lines in the coming year.
1: Thank you so much, and Brilliant to hear from you, as always. Our penultimate speaker, uh Returning back to workers in struggle here is a representative from a campaign that I am sure everyone on this call has been following very closely. Um, So I'm really pleased to introduce Holly Turner of NHS Workers Say No on the fight for a decent pay rise in our NHS, including the action that's due to start this evening from the RCN and the broader fights uh, for the future of NHS and against privatisation. So over to you, Holly. Holly.
9: Thank you, Jess. Thanks for the intro. Um, It's so great to be here. And I've listened to so many amazing speakers
1: who have given
9: us so many inspiring thoughts before me. Um, And it's brilliant to be here on the eve of May Day because for workers everywhere, May Day is our day and it's a day to be proud of the labour movement and its cause, which is the struggle for socialism. And I think so many of the speakers today have referenced this, but we're seeing workers everywhere standing up and demanding change in the biggest strike wave since the early 80s. And workers are demanding a world where we're valued, where we're paid properly, where we have safe working conditions and we want to be in control of our situation and people are organising to get that. And we want to demand an economy which works for the interests of all people, not only one which is boosting private profits and looking after the rich. Now, as Jess said, our strike starts at 8pm tonight and tomorrow nurses will be on pickets across the country. And I really want to urge everyone to join a picket and show support if you can. This week, we saw the health secretary drag us to court and actually cut our strike in half. And we really, really need to show that we won't be bullied into abandoning our fight for pay and safety, which is why we're urging and we're calling out and asking for that strength and solidarity across the movement and at every picket in the country. And I have to say, it really has been quite a journey to watch the government move from clapping us um, on Downing Street and on their doorsteps to taking us to court. But this is the kind of people we're dealing with. And this is why we need to escalate things. We know that in health, it was strike action which got the government to the negotiating table. And it will be strike action again that delivers that full pay restoration. But what we're calling on is our unions to develop a clear strategy of escalation and coordination to ensure we can resolve this dispute in the shortest time possible. And I think we need to be really clear. There's no reason why this government can't stop these strikes. We know that public pay rises aren't inflationary. Investment in public services is a net benefit to the economy. And finally, we know there is more than enough money. This is a political choice and they always choose the already wealthy. So we're returning to the pickets after we recently rejected the pay offer. Um, We chose to reject this offer because it will do nothing to address recruitment and retention. The 5% is an absolute insult to us all after a decade of cuts to our pay and the offer of um, the lump sum which was made to us is nothing more than a bribe which has been offered to a group of struggling workers who are struggling their way through a cost of living crisis and the government knew what they were doing when they put that on the table Now, for all of us working in health, there was a great deal of pressure on us to accept the offer. We were told this is the final offer. There'll be no further negotiations if you reject the offer. But we know the government said there was no money when they first made an offer to us last year. So... The RCN reject outcome that we've seen, we've also seen um, other unions reject, including Unite. And this really is a testament to rank and file activists and the strength of grassroots feeling. And we as a group are absolutely committed to ensuring that we resolve the staffing crisis to ensure safe, safe staffing levels are met for all of our patients. Now, what we're seeing across the health service the Britain's healthcare system is acutely short of workers. We have 135,000 vacancies, and that figure is predicted to rise to a quarter of a million by 2030 if these current trends continue. We've seen one in eight NHS staff who's been in their current role for less than a year, and that is the highest record since the highest figure since records began. So, what that means is we've got more work being carried out by agency staff or less experienced teams, which has been proven to increase the risk of harm to our patients, and we cannot let this continue. So, morale, I would say, across the health service is pretty low, and the government's stance on pay only serves to confirm our growing sense of being completely underappreciated. And we need to be very, very clear the NHS is collapsing, and people are in serious risk. Over 43,000 people died in the last year before an ambulance could even reach them. Seven million people sat on waiting lists. 500 excess deaths a week, with quality of care at record lows. What shocking statistics and what shame on this government. The government are now demanding safe staffing legislation on our strike days, and we say we've been fighting for safe staffing legislation for years. We work in a safety critical profession, which is rightly being highlighted as we prepare to strike, but we're safety critical 24-7. So this is not something which should only be being recognised on our strike days and used as something, a stick to beat us with. And this is why we fight on. So it's very clear times are tough, but motivation amongst nurses to continue the fight is very, very high. And what we're seeing now is workers across sectors linking the fights to build our strikes and reject those poor offers, which will do nothing um, for any of our situations. And this kind of coordination really is crucial in building confidence as we enter another round of ballots. And NHS workers, say, no, we're really looking forward to hosting um, a big meeting down in Brighton next week during RCN Congress with our comrades from NEU, BMA and RMT. So my final message is get on those pickets tomorrow if you can, because our fight is your fight. A win for us is a win for patient safety and the future sustainability of the NHS. And I really want to just wish a happy May Day to all. And I will finish um, with the words of Rosa Luxemburg. As long as the struggle of the workers against the ruling class continues, May Day will be the yearly
1: expression of our demands. Solidarity and thank you. Thanks so much, Holly. Uh, Full solidarity. We are all with you and your fight for the NHS. And as you said, if anyone is on this call wondering what you can do immediately to help workers who are fighting for fair pay or the NHS in this situation, get on those pickets if you can tomorrow and stand side by side with workers taking action. And before I hand over to our final speaker of the day, who will be wrapping up for us, um, just want to thank everybody for participating at today's rally, to our speakers, uh, to everybody who has joined the call today, to the Arise team as always. And I'm already looking forward to uh, next year's rally. Um, before we wrap up, then, I know we have an important battles ahead. I'm sure you do. I'm listening to all of our speakers today. But also, it's so important, our campaigning for people, health and the planet uh, to be put first. And we need to build the resistance, the Tories and to popularise these socialist alternatives we've been hearing about today popularising internationalism and the values of May Day are a vital part of this and a great time for us to come together and to talk about this. So let's keep working together to insist there's no return to business as usual when it comes to our economy and to politics and let's fight together internationally for an end to war, an end to racism and an end to injustice. Um, Please once again donate to the costs of this event if you can Um, and for more information the annual online rise uh, a festival of left ideas is starting on may the 31st i'd urge you to grab a ticket if you haven't already a better and socialist future is possible and we have a world to win so let's do it together our final speaker i'm really pleased to introduce you to uh, he, he- Does not need an introduction really, but it is Richard Bergen MP, the secretary of the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs and a great fighter for working people. Over to you, Richard.
10: Thanks so much, Jess. I'm delighted to be part of this uh, event today. It's been wonderful to hear all the speakers from the different trade unions and from uh, the workers, labour and trade union movements internationally as well. And of course, International Workers Day is a day of celebration, isn't it? A celebration of our struggles as a class and a celebration of the role of the 99% that create the wealth in our society and keep our public services running. And International Workers' Day is a celebration of the movements that we've built to help to create a better world. And it's a celebration of the victories that we've secured in building that better world. Victories from securing the right to vote to the abolition of slavery, from the eight-hour day to the creation of our National Health Service. It's a day that we remember those struggles and the giants of the movement who came before us. But it's also a day when we recommit to deepening our struggles to change a society for the better. Because, as the great slavery abolitionist, Frederick Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. I think this May Day as well is also an opportunity, a celebration of one of the biggest shifts that we've seen in recent years. One big change that's frightening the powers that be is that the working class is back. Working people have taken a stand against attempts from the rich and powerful to make them pay for another economic crisis they did not create. Now, I've been proud to stand on picket lines with nurses and health workers, with teachers, with railway workers, with dockers, with cleaners and workers in the civil service, with lecturers and postal workers, with so many others over the last year. And the reason I go is to show my solidarity and support for their fights for justice. But they also give me hope because they make it clear to us all that working people won't take it. Anymore. And why should they? I'm sick to the back teeth of the rich and the powerful, claiming that workers should just accept pay cuts to tackle inflation when wages are actually falling and it's the greedflation of the big corporations that's helping drive the soaring prices that we all face. And I'm sick of the rich and powerful, like the Bank of England's top economist did. Just this week, telling people to just accept that they're going to be poorer and poorer at the same time that corporate profits are soaring, at the same time as billionaires are raking it in. The rich are getting richer because workers are getting less and less. As Victor Hugo said, the paradise of the rich is made out of the hell of the poor. Wages now are lower than they were 15 years ago. If wages had continued to grow, Of the last 15 years, at the rate that they did in the 15 years before that, then each worker would be paid £11,000 more per year. But that hasn't happened. So where has all that wealth gone? It's gone into lining the profits of the corporations, into funding the luxury lifestyles of the billionaires, and into the offshore bank accounts of the tax dodgers. And that must be our answer that must be our answer when they say that pay rises are not affordable. There's plenty of profits that we can redistribute to give workers a pay rise. And there's plenty of wealth that we can tax to invest in our public services. So this May Day, let's commit to stepping up the fight for wealth taxes and for windfall taxes on all those companies exploiting this crisis for their own gain, for public ownership, for the rip off, private utilities. Let's step up the fight for redistribution and a more equal society. It's a key part of our solution to this crisis. And let's step up our campaign to defend the freedoms and democratic rights that our movement has won over many decades. Let's be clear, these are under attack from this Tory government, because the Tories are increasingly unpopular, because they are failing the vast majority of people and are faced with a growing clamour for change, they've responded with an authoritarian turn, one that aims to close off many of the avenues ordinary people have to challenge its reactionary agenda. The Tories have clamped down on the right to protest, the right to strike and the ability to vote through their voter ID vote suppression strategy targeting working-class communities and, in particular, ethnic minority working-class communities. This attack on core freedoms is a key part of the Tories' political response to the mounting opposition that they face. So too, I'm afraid, is their attempt to scapegoat and sow division by whipping up hostility against the most vulnerable, such as asylum seekers, fleeing war and violence or trans people in so-called culture wars, all done to distract from the Tories' own failings. So our response to that message of division must be a message of unity. We must build unity. Unity of the 99% of the working class in all its diversity. Our response must be about building solidarity and our response must be about offering hope, not fear. For May Day in 1894, Walter Crane, a prolific figure in the arts and crafts movement, created the image of the workers' Maypole. Its messages then still resonate today. It calls for solidarity and humanity, for no starving children, for leisure for all, and for the abolition of privilege. And it declares the cause of labour is the hope of the world. Let that message of hope be the one that we take into May Day this year. The growing workers' struggles we're seeing offer the seeds of building a better future society, a society that puts an end to the 40 year domination of neoliberalism, marketisation, deregulation, and privatisation. Our job is to build on those workers' struggles. People want this government out. People want change. The polls show that people want a more inclusive, fairer society. Let's recommit today to building the movements that can ensure the progressive political change we need to see. Solidarity.